0: This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. All right, hello and welcome back, everybody. I'm coming to you this morning from the sunny balcony overlooking the river here at Moli de Bouchons. I've now been at this property for just about two and a half months and man, so much has happened since my partner and I moved here. And today is going to be a bit of a deep dive into the projects and the challenges that I've been having since moving out here as well as the the deeper questions that I've been asking because it's very much in relation to a lot of what I end up talking about with clients and collaborators when it comes to defining the long term vision of a place and also staying on track with that vision. Uh, with all of the different opportunities and collaborations that come up that can either help to move that vision forward or start to derail it and become a distraction. This is really what's been happening in my life since moving out here. Things have changed really quickly. I mean, to give you an an insight, we were living in a small apartment in the northern suburbs of Barcelona, and it took us about two years to find this property, and then a whole other year technically a year and eight days to do all the paperwork, acquire the financing, and properly move our stuff into this place and get it ready to live. And I won't go too much in detail about that process, but since we moved in here, uh, not only has the lifestyle changed in what I do on a day-to-day basis, I work outside a whole lot more, which has been an absolute joy. But also, it has coincided with a time where a lot of opportunities are coming up for my private work, my work with climate farmers, and you know, new opportunities that I wouldn't have even considered before all of this started to happen. But before I go into all of that, I want to just say a quick thank you to all of the people who gave me positive feedback on that episode two weeks ago. That I recorded as a diary of the water retention landscape design and implementation job that I did in Nicaragua as part of a collaboration with Restoration Agriculture Development, Mark Shepard's company out of the United States, uh, a company that I have respected and wanted to collaborate with for a really long time and that opportunity was fantastic. And being able to give an insight into a behind-the-scenes look at the decision-making process, some of the challenges of running a contract like that, seems to be something that a lot of you were very interested in. And that's kind of the impetus of going into the behind-the-scenes work of my day-to-day life here and some of the challenges that I'm, I'm kind of dealing with and thinking over. So one of the reasons why I'm focusing on this today is because these are topics that come up a lot with clients and collaborators that I that I work with all of the time, which comes down to getting clarity around the long-term vision, the unique version of success that is relevant to each individual, and putting it together into a strategy that helps to orient you towards where you say you want to go, and also prevents you from getting sidetracked with so many of the You know, possibilities that come up along the way that can either move things forward or distract you on this journey. And this is exactly what I'm going through on a personal level and, you know, it really helps me to connect with and have compassion for all these people that I work with because I go through it myself. And so let's start with some updates about what has happened since the previous episode where I gave an insight into, you know, the process of how we got into this property some of the initial projects that my partner and I were taking on, as well as you know the immediate challenges that we would need to, to work on in order to make this comfortable to move in. So, first of all, <laughs> if any of you have seen the three videos, one of the tour of the inside of the building, the other of the tour of the outside perimeter, the yard area immediately around it, and the, and the river, and the third one being a tour of the farmland, which altogether culminates in about three hectares or roughly seven acres of sort of disjointed and interesting little parcels that, that make up this house, then you'll know that I also highlighted a couple of the priority projects that I would need to work on just to get the property safe and to overcome some of the biggest risks as far as the structure and, and yeah, some of the challenges on the outside. So the first one was repairing a portion of damaged wall on the oldest section of, of this house, which is over a thousand years old. We don't know exactly how old it is. I think I may have mentioned that the first time it was listed in a registry was in the year 937, which just blows my mind because growing up in the United States, that was just not a time frame of architecture that I ever came into contact with. Um, I mean, this house is, is far older than the country that I grew up in which is pretty wild. But anyway, so that old portion had been damaged in a previous flood. There was a large storm that came through here called Gloria in January of 2020 and eroded a portion of stone at the base of the wall, which, as you can imagine, poses a real risk to the health of the structure in general. And fortunately, I have some experience doing dry stack walls, and there's plenty of stone around here, which is how many of the buildings got built to begin with. And as part of a smaller project inside of the house where we're cleaning out uh, a little room inside of the basement, which used to be used to store chickens as a chicken coop. There's, you know, I don't know, maybe 50 to 60 centimeters of built up chicken manure that we've been chucking out through the window to the outside. And in digging down, we've also come across a lot of stone. And the stone that came out of there, a lot of it I was able to incorporate into the wall down below. Some really nice flat uh, face stones that were easy to stack. And I've got some pictures. I'll try and put those up on Instagram. But yeah, that was one of the priority projects. Because if we did encounter another large flooding event, which you know, with the way that the climate and the weather patterns have been shaping up over the last couple of decades is increasingly likely, then that's a portion of the wall that's at high risk. And if we were to lose that wall if something were to crumble that would basically destroy the whole house and you know it wasn't a large section of the wall that was missing but yeah it took me a little while to put that together it's quite a tetris game and man i really almost screwed up my back in doing so because i had to get up a ladder and in order to balance myself on the ladder and hold the stones at the same time i had to kind of configure myself in a weird position uh, yeah, I put my back out for a couple of days after that, but we got through it, and though I haven't mortared it in yet, uh, that's going to be a project that I take on when we get out of the lowest temperatures of the season. So we're in a small microclimate here in the valley of the pre littoral mountains in central Catalonia, if anyone's familiar with that area, it's right between the coastal range and the Pyrenees. And... Because of where we're situated, we get very low temperatures compared to other parts of Spain, especially in comparison to other parts of the Mediterranean climate. This winter, we've already got down to minus 13 Celsius, and we've had weeks on end of being down about minus 8 at night. But because of the thin air up here, we also swing about 20 degrees Celsius on a daily basis. So, many times when it gets down, to those lower temperatures at night we also raise up to over 10-15 degrees during the day and it's quite sunny and comfortable which is one of the reasons why I'm sitting outside on the balcony and recording this in the sun right now. But the point being when we get down to those lower temperatures it's not conducive to putting in either cement or lime mortar. Uh, I definitely am going to err on the side of lime mortar for a lot of reasons which I can get into in another episode but if it freezes at night it can destroy the mortar before it has a time to properly set. And so I'll be mortaring these stones in and doing a lot of renovations on the wall when we get into spring and we're out of the risk of you know dipping below freezing temperatures. Another one of the projects that was important for us is that we're converting over the energy systems of the house. Previously, the house had been connected to a large propane tank, which fed the gas to, well, not many of the appliances, but at least all of the kitchen appliances. And it had been disconnected. The tank was empty, but you pay a service charge when it's empty of about 50 euros a month. And since we had no intention of continuing with that fuel source and the fact that the large tank, which I want to say was about 500 liters, was right smack in the middle of the beautiful yard in the back, uh, we planned from the beginning to get rid of that. And we finally had a truck come out and about a 17-meter crane reached over into the backyard, nearly took off a portion or a corner of the roof in the process, and finally removed that tank. And so now I'm in the process of starting to remove the copper gas lines that run all through the house, which is a challenge in and of itself. But it was nice just to get past that, and it opened up a lot of space in the backyard. There's a chain link fence that I'm going to move and probably use provisionally as a chicken coop until... Uh, It's warm enough for me to start to move the chickens in a mobile coop that I am almost finished building. But I'll get into that when we actually get it set up. So that's the gas tank. Uh, And another thing was getting the house heated because we disconnected the previous central heating mechanism, which routed to a bunch of radiators all through the house. But it was designed to burn gas oil or or basically like bunker fuel, (laughs) like diesel. And there were a bunch of very large tanks, about a 1,000 liters apiece, down in the basement. And I finally got all of those disconnected when Alba was away on a weekend trip. And uh, that was another time I almost put my back out, pulling those old tanks up through the basement so I could get them out into the backyard. So, yeah, so that system is now disconnected, and we don't have central heating. So, instead, I've hooked up an old cast iron wood stove in the kitchen area, which we use as a living room. And it's the one room that we keep heated throughout the day. It's a lot more manageable than trying to have a separate room for an office, a kitchen, a bedroom, and all of that. And so as a result, I've had to go out and cut a whole lot of firewood as part of an effort to also clean up a lot of debris that has just been accumulating over the previous years when this house was abandoned. So luckily that serves double duty. I'm cleaning out a lot of Areas where things have just kind of accumulated and started to rot. If it's rotted out quite well, I incorporate it into the compost because I'll be working to improve the soil and start to get perennial plants established in the backyard, eventually working towards creating a botanical garden to feature many of the native species and the flowering species around here in the Mediterranean that also do well in a cold climate, but that's a project for further down the line. And fortunately, Alba's father, Angel, has come by with the chainsaw usually once or twice a week and helped me get all of this firewood prepared. It's just one of those things that I've got to chip away at and is always in the background of the chores that need to get done around here. So as we start to convert some of the old appliances into more efficient ones and more direct ones because we don't need these massive central appliances that heat or Uh, supply hot water to the entire house I've been disconnecting those and putting in ones that can just serve a single section of the house they're a lot more efficient in energy and I can also then start to modulate the way that I control access to these different services by shutting off ones and turning on others as they're needed instead of having to keep a large one running the entire time and one of the main things that we did in order to make this comfortable to live, was get a hot water heater installed. And we got a high efficiency model that's good for about two or three per- persons use. And I got a small one connected for hot water in the kitchen and an 80 liter tank for showering in the bathroom. And one of the big challenges so far has been tracing the systems, the water system, the electrical system, and uh, the different utilities that are routed throughout the house. Fortunately, in the basement, I can trace it pretty well I can find the pipes I can find the electrical connections and and you know follow them to the source and and intervene where needed but then there's also portions where they just routed it through old stone walls and it goes through walls and ceilings that I haven't had chance to access yet so I had to install the hot water heater in a chicken coop The one that I was emptying out that I told you about earlier was the only way that I could get access to the direct water lines to the bedroom that we're in. And so I've got a provisionally I've got the hot water heater installed in the chicken coop. Maybe later when I redo all of the plumbing I'll find a more convenient or accessible place to put it. But that was one of the fun challenges I had to you know drill into the stone wall in order to hang it properly and make some new plumbing connections it was a fun project but (laughs) it's still a little bit wonky a lot of the rest of what i've been doing has been related to cleaning out some of these old rooms Uh, one of the challenges of having moved in is that there's still furniture and even garbage that has just accumulated over the years in areas of the house that they weren't using very much and all of it got left here and so going in and taking out all the old material that we can no longer use and trying to dispose of it responsibly, reuse as much as possible and store still viable materials for future projects It's just been something that takes a lot of time. Um, the basement especially has required a lot of organization but the cool thing is that as I go through that material so many new treasures and little knickknacks that I never thought I would find. For example, there was an old iron for repairing and making shoes. It's like a three-pronged, it almost looks like an anchor of forged steel that we cleaned up, got the rust off of, and i don 't know if it's going to be a paperweight or if at some point i 'm actually going to repair shoes with it, but that was really cool to find. There have been knives and tools and toys for kids and old nativity scenes i mean the the stories that are emerging from the things that come out of these cleaning efforts like in the attic have just been really cool to kind of piece together. Uh, some of them are antiques, some of them are just garbage but Uh, it's starting to weave together a story of the livelihoods by finding things like fishing poles and nets because you know along here on the river there is fishing and uh, other things that have just given us indications into the activities and the hobbies and the decorations that were used over time that give this place life and and piece together the stories of, of how people lived here it's been really really cool to see that come out of what is otherwise kind of mundane cleaning jobs one of the final interesting projects that's going to emerge, I'm not sure exactly how it's going to unfold yet, is starting to fence off the property. Now, I have some thoughts about, mm, let's say, you know, private property, especially when it comes to land or a house that's this old. All of this has existed so long before me and is going to continue to exist as long as I don't destroy it very long after I'm here. And so the concept of owning it is really weird right I'm only here for a small blip of its of its journey and really I'm paying for access I'm, I'm essentially renting it and, and you know buying the rights to it during my lifespan is the most that I could ever hope for and so it's much more of a stewardship role that I have here of course and so fencing it off and making it inaccessible to the general public is something that I've kind of struggled with because you know a big portion of the property gives access to the river and of course the river is a public resource and I don't want to cut off access to it while at the same time the way that people use it around here they just walk through my backyard and many of them have dogs that poop all over the place and many of them leave trash and quite frankly there's just not a culture of respecting the space very much and so I'm going back and forth about the best way to manage this I feel a real responsibility to keep it clean to take care of the plant and animal life around here especially since this is a preserve for river otters there's an ongoing project with the natural park to monitor their populations and to ensure that they stay healthy and there are fines that that they put out there for people bringing dogs down to the river because they can destroy wildlife habitat they can scare away wildlife by by urinating around and you know marking their territory which makes it unwelcoming for for more delicate wildlife and you know people come down and play loud music and throw trash around and you know i'm i guess this is gonna unfold over time i really want to curate access of the general public and not cut it off but in the short term i do need to make sure that i can stay on top of it and properly care for the space And so at least provisionally, I'm going to be fencing off this area um, just so that I can get on top of it and and figure out a proper way to invite people to to use it in a respectful way. And yeah, so this is going to be an ongoing thing that I kind of coordinate with the local community in a way that promotes responsible use and, and reverence for the natural resources here and allows me to... Yeah, basically just not have to play damage control. I don't think that's a a good use of my time. And so, yeah, at least provisionally I'm going to be fencing it off. And, and yeah, based on that I'm going to figure out how to manage the space. If anybody has ideas or references for how people have done this successfully in the past, I would love to hear it because it's something that's really important to me. All right, so with that said, I'm going to talk quickly about some of the new priorities moving forward. As I mentioned before, there's that radiator system throughout the entire house that was connected to the old central heating system. And because it gets so cold here at night and there are many portions of the basement that aren't properly closed off, there's fresh air that just flows in through the riverside. And because we've been going down to such low temperatures, there's a risk of pipes freezing. And so one of the things I've been trying to do is to drain out the radiator system of its water. And I was able to successfully drain it one time by cutting off the main water system but as soon as I opened it back up, there is some point in the system where it's refilling. And I just re- basically undid all that work that I had, I had done previously. And I have yet to find the refill point from the main water system into the radiator system. And until I do, that's going to remain full of water and a risk of, of freezing. So I'm going to have to go through there at some point and figure out where that water is entering. So that's one of the challenges. Another one is uh, is installing a new water heater for the back annex of the house, which is going to be our apartment system. And I'm going to need, you know, a proper water heater for there so that we can start to use the shower. And yeah, just uh, create that as our private space within the larger home that is mostly going to be dedicated to business. And as I've been doing investigations around here for the budget that it would require, we're looking at over 800 euros just for the plumbing itself, and that's, you know, I'm, of course I'm not going to hire it out, but gosh, if I was to do that, it would probably go to about triple. And it's a relatively simple system, but I'm I'm dedicated to putting in really good quality materials. Uh, as much as possible, I want to use natural materials, but let's face it, there aren't really any good natural material options for for plumbing systems, and so... In lieu of that, looking for the most durable and long-lasting materials is, is what I have as options. But yeah, it's just, it's just <laughs> all of these kind of accumulate into a budget that I, I need to meter out very carefully and make sure that I'm touching on the most important projects first so that I don't start to go into debt, which I'm quite allergic to. Another one of the big challenges is cleaning out the basement area in the oldest section where they used to run the mill wheel. If anybody's seen that video where I show uh, what that looks like currently, it's full of trash. People have just dumped garbage there for God knows how many years, and the roof is in bad condition. In fact, it's going to have to get redone eventually. The wooden beams that support the, the roof are rotted out. And we've got, fortunately, uh, approved an, an application for a subsidy to work on that because it is an old historical building. And there are incentives to keeping them in good condition, but we're still a long way off from getting to that project, and the first steps are going to be cleaning it out. Uh, so yeah, God knows what kind of treasure I'm going to find down there. I've heard that some of the old mill wheels are, are buried somewhere in, in the floor, so I'm looking forward to finding all kinds of treasure, but also uh, wearing good protective equipment because there's tons of rusty steel all over the place, so that's going to be interesting. We've also got to remove a lot of the old appliances. These were installed probably in the 70s and 80s that served the hotel that this place used to be. So there's big old dryers, there's a centrifuge for spinning laundry and an old laundry machine. I'm sure some of it would still work, but we're just not doing any kind of hotel function of the business at that scale anytime soon. And even if we did, we would want to get mm, more efficient appliances. Those things use energy like you would not believe. And so we're going to see if we can resell them. I think for the most part they still work. But uh, yeah, that's just going to be another challenge because these things are massive and I'm going to need some help just to to move them out of here. And let's see, there's also the design for a gate that I'm going to put as access to the backyard. This kind of goes along with the fencing project, but I want something that's attractive and is inviting. Again, I I eventually want to invite people back into that area as soon as I can stay on top of the stewardship role that I'm assuming. And having something attractive while also maintaining privacy and, you know, just uh, keeping it in line with the, with the aesthetics of this really beautiful house is going to be a fun project, but it's another one of those things that gets added to the budget. And so finding the right place to put it within the priority projects of the house is, is just one of the challenges I'm looking at. Now... There's one more big project that has come up recently, and I know at this point you're thinking, dude, how much more can you take on? Well, (laughs) this next project is really going to make you think that we're crazy. But a unique opportunity has come up recently with a contact that my partner Alba has kind of cultivated since we had the idea of moving into this place. And it's to do with a, a small store, or I guess a franchise of stores called Granel. So Granel is a small franchise here in Spain, and there are three locations around here in Catalonia that were owned by a guy who, you know, is is trying to move into a different role within the company, and he's selling off the different franchises that he had. Alba previously got in touch with him because we were thinking about opening a small version of the franchise in the storefront of this property. And as he's looking to get rid of some of his own franchises, uh, he called her and asked if she would be interested in taking on one that's in the town right next to us, about a 20-minute drive from here. And it's already all set up. It's got all the installations. It's got a little bit of inventory left over. And he's offering it at a very generous price because it's convenient for him to have someone continue on with the franchise. And he realizes that in order to make that happen in a timely manner, that, you know, he has to drop the price significantly. And it's something that is within our budget, surprisingly, um, It's just, you know, one of the incentives that he's made to try and and move it quickly. And so, yeah, we're looking at the possibility of taking over management of this little bulk goods store. And we really like the ethics of the company. They promote a lot of local producers, almost all organic inventory, things that go along with, you know, natural health and medicine. There's teas and spices and... uh, you know, dry nuts and fruits, wonderful mixes of, you know, like rice and risotto. And but yeah, you know what a bulk good store is. But one of the cool things that fits in line with some of the other enterprises that we're trying to get going with our kind of suite of businesses that we're starting is that it's got workshop space. There's a section in the back of the store that's got some tables and you can kind of section it off with, with, a, with a heavy curtain. And they use it for promoting some of their products, for people to come through and give exhibitions of, you know, how to make herbal medicines, how to use uh, or, or create recipes out of the products that they have. And it's one of the things that motivates us to create a presence in this community and perhaps reach an audience that is not as interested in coming out to our small place in the mountains, but is motivated to stay closer into the town. And, yeah, is interested in the types of subjects and... And products that we promote so (laughs) as you can imagine that's a whole nother amount of work that would go on top of all the things that we're doing here at the house but fortunately Alba has a lot of experience in running stores she's worked at cafes and worked in reception and customer service for quite a few years before this and it was actually a dream of hers is what she wanted to do here at the house but this looks like an opportunity to get it started far before we'll have the ability to do the renovations that are necessary to open a store here and, you know, like anything that we try out, one of the things that we've been looking into is the risk management for it. So, you know, it does require a significant investment on our part. It, it wouldn't be nearly as significant if we had time to rebuild some of our savings. But uh, because it's cheap enough, you know, it's, it's something that we can hopefully assume. We've got to move some money around. But uh, if we can make it work, uh, it could potentially be a passive source of income From the sale of of products itself and then something of a profit once we get the workshops going. And it's something that Alba is very motivated to do that she's going to pour her love and her graphic design abilities into and just make it beautiful. And I really love to see her creativity expressed in something that is more for her own benefit rather than just for clients, you know. Uh, so I'm really excited to see what she does with it, and yeah, it's just going to be a challenge to fit it into all of the other responsibilities that we have at the moment. So that's one of the things that's happening as well. Now, outside of the home here and the businesses that were at the early stages of launching, I'm also working on projects with climate farmers and with private clients. So when it comes to climate farmers and my work in coordinating the community and helping farmers in their transition to regenerative agriculture... I'm starting to organize farm gatherings and workshops at the farms that are in our network. One of the first we're planning for the 4th of March, which is coming up very soon, at the farm of a good friend of mine in Alentejo in Portugal. And so this is going to be combined with a small team retreat in which we finally get to get together with some of the other members that I work with remotely on a, on a regular basis. It's always good to reconnect with them. I mean, they're close friends of mine besides just being workmates. And, yeah, these times of being able to work in closer proximity and have longer conversations without the barrier of a screen in between us is always really productive for clarifying vision and strategy for how we're going to try and accomplish our goals in the upcoming months. And to tack on visits to the farms of some of our collaborators and the people in our network is just an absolute joy. I mean, it's so inspiring to see the creativity and the wisdom Of Many of these land managers and farmers, it really gives me inspiration as well as reference for where to point other people for their own inspiration and guidance who are working in similar contexts in similar climates and with similar business enterprises. And so I am going to be recording episodes from these farm visits and and events in the upcoming weeks and months as I get a chance to go out there in person and yeah (laughs) the other thing though is it just takes a lot of time to coordinate and do the logistics for these so that's taking quite a bit of my time now as well we're also developing the transition program and the farm health report card and this is kind of my main project at the moment so turning this into a formula that people can follow that helps to simplify some of the steps while also giving them the opportunities to customize as needed Based on their own context and the needs of their enterprises and them as individuals is something that's really motivated me from the beginning. I know exactly how difficult it is to deal with all of the moving parts and the dynamics and the uncertainties of of running a farm enterprise. I mean, I've worked on farms quite a bit in the past from Australia to New Zealand to the United States and then previously in Guatemala before moving on to this farm here. And I have so much respect for the people who do this for their, their livelihood on a daily basis. And in an effort to try and make this more approachable and de-risk the transition process, we're coming up with a template for the key things that you need to consider and then giving them support in the form of consulting and coaching, uh, educational resources, hopefully finding access to startup funds and uh, financial support, both coming from institutions, private endeavors and our carbon plus program in climate farmers um, and in order to track the progress of this we're building a farm health report card alongside with it and there's a baseline of key information that indicates things like soil health and in this farm health report card there's a baseline of information in three categories that I'm still clarifying but that we're co-creating with farmers to make sure that it's relevant to what it is that they need to track for their own versions of success and to keep them uh, on, on the path that they say they want to go to. And the three categories are ecological health, which of course is fundamental to any farm business. Business health, which is fairly standardized and is not necessarily unique to farms. Things like cash flow and profit and loss statements and assets and calculate their depreciation. Obviously, all of the different variables that come up in a different enterprise in, in a farm are what it is you're going to be measuring. In order to track the health The financial health of a business uh, as as one of the key metrics for whether or not your farm is doing well. And the last category covers personal and community health. What we're looking at here is the health of the, the human community, whether that's employees or family members or you know all of the members of the community around you that are included in the decision making and are directly affected by the choices that are made on a farm. And this is the category that i find that is most often overlooked when we're looking at you know holistic regeneration in any kind of business it can be difficult to consider these things because they're largely sub- subjective right uh, this can include categories like the health of the relationship between between members a feeling of purpose and and being actualized through this work it can also be as tangible as whether or not they're fairly compensated and stress levels and health and strength and flexibility. All of these things contribute to the capacity and the the fulfillment of the humans that are involved in any kind of enterprise. But in this case, of course, we're looking at farms. And so right now I'm trying to zero in on the commonalities that are necessary for measurements on any type of farm enterprise. And then from there, people can choose the other metrics and points of measurement that are relevant to their context and to their business, and hopefully start to create a relevant tool for measuring progress as people work towards this concept of regeneration. And that's really just a very small overview of this project. It's going to continue to evolve and take shape as I work with the farmers in our our community. And if this is something that you're interested in joining... For now, just keep in mind that the community is only open to people who are actively farming within Europe. But if you don't meet that criteria and would still like to contribute to the development of this program, joining the Discord server for regenerative skills here is the best way to get in touch with me and to explore some of the things that I am uh, looking into and talking to other members about if if this is something that's of interest to you. And so at this point, (laughs) with so many things going on, I mean I've just been absolutely exhausted and pulled in so many different directions and one of the things that has started to suffer is the outreach and the, the projects that I do through regenerative skills with the clients and, and yeah the collaborations that go through that side of the business. Now, I still feel very confident and happy about the quality that I'm able to deliver for the few clients that I've been able to take on. But I've had to say no to a lot of other propositions from people who have reached out and asked for help. Uh, And as a result, I realized that I'm starting to become a bottleneck in this process. And I'd really like to be able to say yes to more people and offer more services and assistance to people through the network. And in order to do so, I am starting to open up regenerative skills as a cooperative. I've already been collaborating loosely with some other friends and other designers and, and you know people working in the regenerative space and services for a while, but the collaborations have been you know single project based or a little more loose. And increasingly, I'd like to form a cooperative where we help each other out on a more regular basis, share clients and projects, and support one another in the services that we're Able to offer. Now I'm in the very early stages of this, um, but with two other people uh, who I'll kind of announce later as we formalize this process, Uh, we're coming up with some templates, some standards, some agreements, and conditions in which we can work together and support one another in order to try and grow the capacity so that, you know, how much work I'm able to take on is not the limiting factor to the number of people that we're able to assist and offer some support and guidance to. And so this is something that's going to evolve over time. I'll be announcing more of these details as we formalize them as a group. In fact, I've got a meeting in person already scheduled for an add-on to this farm visit that I'll be doing in Portugal. And hopefully by the end of that, we'll record an episode where we talk about how we're formalizing these collaborations and increasingly working together. And also along those lines, I'm going to be directing more of the courses and workshops that I offer to certification training. Because I would really like to grow the network of people who are able to offer the services that I've been doing previously. Without necessarily it needing to be me who travels to different locations, right? There are many of you out there who are already doing really great work and can offer professional services and... So through the workshops and educational opportunities that I'm offering this year, increasingly I'm going to be gearing these around certifications and teaching the process by which I go and do site assessments, the coaching and consulting journeys that I bring clients through, and as others are able to learn my process and offer their own skills and expertise, I hope to be able to offer a larger suite of professional services to clients and collaborators around the world. So tentatively, I've got one certification workshop for the regenerative design process scheduled for the middle of September at a wonderful farm in France. And hopefully in the next couple of weeks, I'll be confirming those dates and the details of that course. So I'll be announcing that both on the Discord and on our Instagram channels, if that's something that you're interested in. And I will likely be scheduling at least two or three others among the networks of farms and, you know, maybe even my own place if I'm able to finish up with the renovations that are necessary to make this a a good space to host people. So to bring this full circle and to give you an insight into some of the thought process and, I guess, conflicts that I am going through as I develop this place and continue to grow the business... Basically a lot of opportunities have come up recently for collaborations and work that I would have given a limb to be involved with when I first started out in this career path and yet with the development of my home and focusing on creating community where I am I've started to second guess my primary motivations and come back to what's really important to me not only in my lifestyle but also in my commitment to my family and the people around me who would otherwise kind of get left out if I put all of my efforts into to this kind of career development. Now there's pros and cons to both sides and I've been weighing these out pragmatically because obviously if, if I take some of these jobs it would mean a whole lot more cash flow coming in that would make projects here perhaps a lot easier or faster to, to implement having money to do the renovations on the house, to build the fence in the gate that's necessary for maintaining privacy and stewarding the land around me. I mean, this is just gonna move faster if I've got a larger budget to work with. I also, you know, I really love to travel. I've been traveling for about 15 years of my adult life and I love to see new places, new cultures, and especially get involved with projects and help people to advance their goals on their different pieces of land wherever I go. It's also something that my partner Alba really loves to do. Uh, she hasn't traveled nearly as much as I have in, in the past and is super motivated to see you know, new and exotic places, try different foods, see different ways of life and cultures, and it's something that I would really love to include her in on. There's also the excitement and the challenges of taking on new projects and collaborating with new companies and people that I've respected and looked up to my entire life. Um, I, I love to learn directly with people that I admire and who have more experience and can help me to level up my own skill sets and, and offerings to clients. But of course, the, pro, the, the cons of that would be having little time at home. And I've already started to see this creep in with the project that I did in Nicaragua, followed by the site assessment in Madeira, followed by having my parents come and visit for a while. It's just, you know I'm looking at almost a month now of not being able to advance the renovations and the projects that are necessary to keep this moving forward. And so our house and our farm is going to take a whole lot longer to develop. And certain enterprises are just not going to be feasible if I'm moving around all the time. Frankly, it's one of the reasons why we haven't brought the chickens in yet. Uh, Alba's parents are still taking care of them over at their house, even though they bought them for us when we had just signed the initial paperwork putting a down payment on the house. And we were looking forward to it being one of the first things that we do is to start to move animals in here. But it just doesn't make sense to do that if I'm moving around regularly. And we need somebody to be here constantly. And, you know, I'd really like to get good gardens going here, start to plant out the agroforestry system, but all of this requires me to be present and to be observing and responding to things in real time if it's going to be successful. I often get people asking me when they come to me as design clients, you know, can you help me set up a really low-maintenance, high-production system, maybe agroforestry or, or something like that, and, you know... The truth is, if I could do that for you, (laughs) I wouldn't even be in this line of work. If there was some kind of very low-maintenance, high-output system, uh, you would know about it by now. And there's a lot of, uh, let's say, social media videos and posts about, oh, like, you know, a couple of hours a week and all of this abundance and stuff. And I mean, it's just not realistic. At some point, if you want high output from an ecosystem, you're going to have to put in a certain amount of high input. Now, that does not mean money. It does not necessarily mean material input. But oftentimes, that's compensated by time and effort input. And so, you know, I just have to be realistic with myself too about if I really want this place to to be jamming and to provide for my family and my community, I'm going to have to put in the time, especially in the beginning. In the long term, it is a little bit more feasible to have decently high output without having to do too much input. But when you're starting from a damaged ecosystem, as I am, although there is, you know, it's not nearly as damaged as some other places, I'm very fortunate in that regard, it does require a lot to get it kind of kick started, to restart the cycles that have been compromised, and to, yeah, reconnect many of the processes that are necessary to get it moving into a, a growth and evolutionary stage. And so, yeah, if that's something that is going to be important to me, I just have to take on the responsibility of being here more often. The other thing is, of course, that local community connections are really going to suffer. Uh, I have not been putting in the effort that, honestly, I should have been to learning Catalan. Now, I can communicate very easily with my neighbors in Spanish. That's fortunate. But... It's not the way to communicate to them in a way that kind of establishes a deeper relationship, right? That's really the, the language that people around here use. And they're very proud of it. It's a very small regional language that has required a huge amount of effort on the part of the government and the local communities to preserve. I mean, they're recovering from almost 50 years of their language being illegal in all formal settings during the Franco regime. And I can really understand and respect the effort that has been required to keep this relevant in the modern times when everything is being homogenized, when Spanish and English become the dominant languages in an area to preserve your mother tongue and to keep it an active part of the culture. And I want to respect that. I really want that to be an aspect that I put the necessary time into learning in order to be able to engage with my neighbors and the people around me uh, on their terms, you know, instead of kind of defaulting to the easier mode of communication from my side. And also just establishing relationships in this area is going to require time, you know. They're probably used to, especially as this place is increasingly, uh, I don't want to say colonized, (laughs) that doesn't sound good, but there's, there's a significant, I wouldn't say expat or immigrant population that can make it difficult to preserve local culture. And I would like to, you know, take on the responsibility and the effort to participate in that instead of, again, just defaulting to what's easy and what is common between us, you know. And also just from a, a personal interest point of view, it requires time and effort and observation to become a person of place the understanding of the ecology that you participate in is not something that you can just study in a book and then start running with as soon as you get on a piece of land. There are always unique nuances and, and small anomalies on a landscape that you just have to pay attention. You have to be present in order to observe and understand. And, you know, you can go in and make a mainframe design and make certain assumptions based on the climate and the plant communities and the presence or lack of presence of wildlife around but ultimately, this is a relationship just like any other that needs to be cultivated that requires investment on my part in order to become a key member and you know, be humbled by the dependence that I have on the health of this place. And it's, it's a relationship that I'm very motivated to invest in and to to contribute to. So all of this brings me back to the questions of what kind of lifestyle that myself and my partner Alba want. And what our priorities are as a couple and as a family. She and I recently revised our holistic context, which is an exercise that I really encourage everyone to do. Which is geared towards boiling down what's really important for you in your near future and in the long term. In a way of articulating what you consider to be a high quality life. And the modes of production or what needs to be acquired in order to achieve that. And that's not always tangible, it's not always material, right? It doesn't necessarily mean you have to produce your own food or uh, you need to have a source of clean water. Although that's pretty fundamental, everybody needs those things. It also has to do with how you need to behave in order to establish the kinds of relationship and communication with the people around you that contributes to a high quality life. One of security, one of deeper connection. And in revising this exercise, Alba and I always come back to the fact that for us, investment and and focus on family is at the core of everything that we want to do. And as a result, investing in this place means making it conducive for family and neighbors to be here more often, to put in the infrastructure and make it inviting for people to come and spend a more significant amount of time. It would be easy for us to set this up as just a tourist enterprise and have people coming and going constantly as a form of cash flow that can move forward projects. But it's more important for us to make this a comfortable place for people to come and spend a significant amount of time where relationships can be deepened, where an understanding and a communication between one another as well as the ecology that supports us is something that is advocated for beyond just you know, fast turnover and quick cash flow. One of the things that came up in reviewing this, especially since my parents came to visit for the first time for about a week and Alba's parents were here quite regularly, is that that both of our parents are starting to reach retirement age. And, you know, within about probably 10 to 20 years are going to need a lot more care than they do at the moment. I mean, we're very fortunate that they're in good health at the moment and very independent. But, you know, we're realistic. Uh, within a fairly short amount of time that's not going to be the case and we want to make sure that we have the ability to to be the ones who take care of them as this starts to be the transition of life that naturally happens and so the considerations of our priority projects and the way that we renovate this home is very much geared towards being conducive to To being able to conveniently, well as conveniently as possible, take care of them as they reach their later years. In my case, you know, my family is scattered all over the world. My sister, who's my best friend, lives in Kuwait and her and her little girls come and visit us as often as they can. They have long vacations from school there. And sometimes they come and visit for a month or two months at a time. And we would really like that to become a regular part of our rhythms throughout the year more than just a tourist visit or a reconnection, my sister and I have talked about what it looks like to do life together, you know, where it isn't just a novelty to have them here, but, you know, they do part of their schooling and I help to educate them about the natural world, which they don't have nearly as much access to there in the Middle East, as a key component of, of their development. And, you know, what it looks like to have them... Uh, participate in the development of a farm. Maybe help us out with some of the the little enterprises that we have such as running the shop or you know maybe even at some point doing something related to like a summer camp or uh, a natural education program for kids. And so I was actually talking to my sister the other day about how in order to achieve these goals, I'm going to have to adopt a mindset that is distinct from the one that was necessary for me to get into this, this lifestyle, to, to buy this house, to build up the career that I have at this point. Because, you know, at a certain degree, that mindset was one of, of scarcity, where I was constantly on the hustle. I was taking on more and more projects constantly in order to increase the amount of money that I was bringing in, that I was saving. Uh, making a lot of compromises oftentimes to my personal health and to sometimes even my relationship to to get the resources that were needed to kind of establish myself to make a reputation here to build up a client base and to to get into a house and I'm very grateful that that worked out I mean it was certainly not a a single effort. I was very much supported by family, friends, my partner Alba, her family, and I'm incredibly grateful for that. But yeah, coming back to that mindset, it's it's essential for me now that I have established this basis to move into a mindset of contentment, appreciation, of gratitude rather than continuing to constantly be on the hustle, constantly be looking for more, but rather enjoy and help to coax into the full expression of its potential of the ecosystem that I'm participating in, of the relationships that I've worked to cultivate, and of, you know, the, the businesses that I've put an effort to establish, it comes back to something that I've often talked about on this podcast in the past, of so that... Maintenance is not sexy, right? Everybody talks about getting projects uh, getting projects established, doing a design, doing an installation, and planting your trees or whatever. But honestly, what makes these things successful is not how well they're implemented, but it's how well they're maintained. And honestly, I'm in a very fortunate position right now to have a lot of my basics taken care of, and then some. And at this point, it's, again, a different mindset that's going to be keeping them going, to help them to flourish and evolve and to reach their potential than it was to acquire them and this is something that I'm going to continue to explore in the coming episodes and seasons here as I work to understand what it means to become a person of place, to establish deeper relationships and to embrace the maybe not as flashy or as sexy maintenance routines that keep these things healthy to pay attention, to understand their development and their evolution and to participate in this process. Now, I know that there are probably many of you out there who are at some stage along the point of all of these things that I've been talking about. You're either developing or working towards acquiring some of the things that, you know, I'm I'm now starting to work with And there are quite a few of you, as I've seen on the Discord channel, who have already acquired your land or have already started to build up your business and are moving into some of the stages that I've just mentioned. What I want to go over real quickly is some of the tools that I have found to be incredibly helpful when thinking about these kind of deeper considerations that are often not explored in conventional education or adequately explored even in permaculture courses or the other types of alternative education that have been key for me getting to where I am. So, one of the tools that I've already mentioned is that of the Holistic Context Creation. This comes along with the Savory Institute's curriculum and it's one of the fundamental things that they encourage everybody to do before getting into the rotation of cattle or the management of the ecosystem in order to adequately understand what it is that it's important to you. The first step in developing a Holistic Context is to understand the whole under-management. The entirety of the systems that you are interacting with and that you will need to consider when developing something in a holistically regenerative way. Doing an inventory of the whole under management, the resources that you have access to, the communities and the ecosystems that you are interacting with, and also the decision makers who need to be included in any decision making process in order to ensure that their considerations and their priorities are a part of the strategy that that comes out of this process. From there, you look into what is called a quality of life statement. What does a quality of life or a quality life mean to you? And then from there, looking at the future resource base. And this can be physical, this could be relationships, this can be uh, time management that would be required for you to then achieve that quality of life in perpetuity, in the long term. So it's one thing to make a huge effort to acquire this quality of life in the short term, But again, going back to what is required for maintenance, if you want this quality of life throughout the the journey that you're on, what would be necessary for you to maintain it, to have it be a lasting state that you experience? There's so much more to this and I have some worksheets developed upon this as well as some other exercises beyond the original curriculum that I've found helpful to frame the questions and to look deeper into this, which I'll go over right now. There's another one that my sister and I have been doing for almost six years now and it's called creating a future letter and what this exercise entails is that you write a letter as if you were one year ahead of the time that you are now so we do this every New Year's and the letter is from the perspective of looking back on the year that you are about to go into so I did this for example for 2023. And I wrote it as if it were New Year's of two thousand twenty four looking back on the previous year, and I write this to my sister because I can share you know all details and very personal things with her and The idea is that you list off the things that you have accomplished, and the power of doing this as if it has already come to pass is is really is really useful um, It gets you in a mindset of you know this is what has already happened and puts you in a mindset of how you feel and what you experience having already accomplished those things. And you're supposed to review it every month or so just to keep it in mind and make sure that these are still high priorities. Uh, I've put things on there such as you know, the renovation projects that I've talked about but also having spent time with her and her children and other members of my family. Uh, the depth of quality of relationship that I have with my partner Alba at that point some of the things that I've overcome, some milestones. And I've learned over time to mention things not necessarily super specifically, such as dates of accomplishment or exactly how, and let those things unfold instead throughout the year. But mentioning the things that are really close to Uh, an experience of satisfaction and of personal pride for at least having put in the effort, even if the accomplishment itself doesn't exactly look like the specific idea of success that I may have envisioned at the beginning of the year. That's one that I really recommend. And, you know, I can talk more about this in detail on the Discord server if anybody wants. I also really like an exercise called fear setting where you list out the things that are most likely to impede the the implementation or the actions that would need to be taken on a given project due to some anxiety or some worry that you have about what could potentially go wrong. And by listing these out, you talk about, you know, the likelihood that these things could go wrong, the worst case scenario, what could really happen if they you know, if the the worst case scenario were to come to pass, while also looking at what could be done to mitigate these or to repair the damage if that really is what ends up happening. And what it does is it puts fears into perspective about how likely they really are, how bad the downside really is, because it's often not nearly as bad as you might build up in your mind. And even if it really is that bad, there's usually some precautions that you can take in the beginning or some systems that you could set up so that if that really does come to pass, you can recover fairly easily or fairly realistically from these worst-case scenarios. And it's been really useful for me in overcoming some anxieties that you build up in your head without the likelihood or the full scope of it really taken into account. What I've learned to do now is, you know, when you get into these modes of self-doubt and and worry and start playing the what-if game, right? That's what we refer to it as, you know, what if this happens, what if this goes wrong? The trick is to fully answer that question, right? Oftentimes we just stop at what if uh, and and list the worst thing that could happen, right? But if you actually play that out to its logical conclusion and really analyze the, the depth of the risk that you have built up in your head, it's very often much more manageable than you think and can remove at least mental barriers to progress or to action that you would have otherwise not taken for the anxiety that you've built up in your head around it. And I've got worksheets on this and I'm very happy to, to share them on the Discord too if, if that's of interest to people. There's also value analysis. And this goes along very well with the holistic context development process where it's a worksheet where there are a lot of different categories of priorities that one could have. And you give them a numerical value to determine really how important they are to you and how important it would be if you were suddenly to experience them Uh, grow or to diminish in your life significantly. And by going through some simple calculations, you can determine what the top 10 most important priorities for you, both internally and existentially are, and work them into your strategy for what you want to put an effort into helping to grow or to protect in your life based on what comes out of, you know, this priority assessment and the values that you have. Another one is the eight forms of capital. Many of you who have studied permaculture are probably familiar with this. Uh, Ethan Rowland and Gregory Landwey are the original, uh, are the originators of this concept, and it's a way of analyzing the different forms of capital that are often underestimated or underconsidered when looking at, you know, what it is you're trying to build through your efforts in a project or what you would like to experience in your life. Things like Financial capital, obviously, are some of the ones that we usually consider, but also intellectual, cultural, um, experiential, spiritual capital, which are often not considered in the same analysis or, you know, cost and benefit analysis when taking on a project and looking at the things that really culminate into a rich experience that can fulfill us in ways that limited forms of capital, like financial capital, just can't touch, right? And this way we give credence to all these other forms of value in our lives that, that are, are really worth considering, that are often not talked about nearly as much, but you know are, are worth understanding. And again, you work through a worksheet, you give it a numerical value, you try and understand what you have in balance and what is out of balance in order to try and create a, a bit more of a homeostasis and a more robust understanding of the resources that you have and the ones that you need to perhaps work on in order to achieve a better state of balance in your life. And so in going through all of these different exercises, reviewing these with my family, with my partner, some of the conclusions that I've come to is that I really enjoy teaching. And that's somewhere that I'm going to be putting more effort into the upcoming years. You know, It makes sense with this investment on the, the shop that we're looking to acquire in the city because of the workshop space that it has. And also the renovations here in the home that perhaps before making it easy to, let's say, have rural tourism and people coming and stay the night, that instead we put a little bit more priority on fixing up the teaching spaces, the common spaces where we can host workshops and, and different courses. Because both Alba and I are very passionate about teaching and sharing knowledge and inspiration from things that have helped to transform our own lives and increased our health, increased our satisfaction and making these available and more common within our community so that we can help to grow the overall well-being and health of the people around us, of the communities that we interact with. As an extension of this, building collaborations, like I mentioned before, expanding the team that I work with, and in turn my ability to help and assist other people who who request it, and never needing to say no or turn people down is really important to me but rather to focus on the aspects of my work that really challenge me and bring me joy and help me to continue to learn and giving opportunities to collaborators and students who would like to get into this line of work and who bring complimentary services that either I'm not very good at or are not the parts of my work that I enjoy is another part that really motivates me. All right. Whew. That was a lot. I bounced around to so many different topics. This was something that I was really keen to discuss on this channel. Partly as a way to open up the conversation. I would love to hear from those of you who are listening and would like to contribute to this as a topic that we explore on the Discord server within these groups. Because I think that many of the considerations, many of the internal struggles that I'm going through right now are common and and many of you can relate to them maybe in very different ways, maybe you're at a very different stage of development or goal completion than I am. Or maybe you're further advanced along these. You've been established for a long time. You've you know are looking at, at different priorities and how to balance all of the opportunities as well as some of the the challenges that are coming up in your life. But I would love to hear from the rest of you as to how you find direction and and make these difficult decisions. What are some of the exercises or the practices that you've integrated into your process in order to make this easier for yourself or to help you go a little bit deeper and understand what the core priorities and considerations of other people that you share your life with are in order for the decisions that you make not to be selfish and to benefit the others around you that enrich our lives and our experiences. Do you have any processes or resources that you use to break these big questions down into manageable considerations? Uh, Whose agreement and alignment do you personally need to ensure that you're not selfishly making decisions that would interrupt other people's priorities and processes? And once you've made a decision, how do you monitor the progress of your choices in order to know if they're getting where you want to go or if you need to to revise them and to correct course? And these are things that I'm always struggling with and and looking to explore deeper, not only for my own benefit, but also to help some of the clients that I work with on a regular basis. And so look, to wrap this up, let's keep this conversation going on the Discord channel. If any of you have ideas, advice, or questions of your own, I would really love to hear about them there on the channel. And if you'd like to join me in person on some of the most beautiful farms around Europe for the upcoming farm tours and the workshops in Portugal, for example, on on March the 4th. And in Italy, which I don't have the exact dates for, which will be in April. Same with Germany, I'll be there in May. And then I'm looking in the long term to Spain and France in the autumn. If you'd like to be involved in those, just be sure to follow the Climate Farmers on Instagram and LinkedIn for those farm tours. And... I'll be announcing course and workshop dates through my own Instagram channel and the website in the Discord server. And once again, like I mentioned before, if you are interested and eligible as an active farmer in Europe and would like to join the Climate Farmers community, I would love to see you on the forums there, learn about some of the enterprises and the work that you're doing, and hopefully help you out on your transition towards regenerative management of your farm. And also be sure to subscribe to this podcast if you like this content. Wherever it is that you stream your podcast from, it doesn't matter. But it really helps me out also if you would leave a review. It helps others to discover this content. And quite frankly, (laughs) it's nice to get the feedback. Also be sure to check out the Regenerative Skills Instagram for pictures and videos of all of these projects that I'm doing. I've got a video that I'm going to be releasing pretty soon about an experiment that I've been running to preserve softwood species as I start to reconfigure the forest along the road here on the property towards one of more deciduous trees. I'm harvesting the spruce that's there and I'm trying to preserve it in place so that it lasts longer and doesn't rot. Um, That'll be coming out soon. I'll, I'll give indications of it soon. And of course, if you're interested in getting dedicated support for your own project, you can now schedule a free planning session with me or one of my team members through the request form on our website. You can also follow all the links, the show notes, and the past resources there at regenerativeskills.com. And I truly believe that no matter what your knowledge, your experience, abilities, resources, or background, that you can be a powerful force for regeneration on this planet. And we're here to help you to find that path. So until next time... Keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.